Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following discussion will involve spoilers and may contain strong language. Said the night wind to the little lamb. Today, as part of our Christmas special, we'll be looking at our naughty and nice list. Starting with Gremlins, directed by Joe Dante, and Scrooged, directed by Richard Donner. A star, a star, dancing in the night with a tail as big as a kite, with a tail as big as a kite. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. I want to see your nipples. It's Gally in Glasgow. Acid rain, drug addiction, international terrorism, freeway killers... Now more than ever, it is important to remember the true meaning of Christmas. It's Devlin in London. Would you please, for the love of God, and your own body, stop the damn hammering? It's Patrick in London. Goddamn foreign cars. <laughs> they always freeze up on you. It's Matt in South Korea. Yes, welcome back, and welcome back, listeners. We're doing our naughty and nice list for Christmas. So welcome to part one where we have asked each of our uh, hosts to pick a traditional Christmas film that they watch every year, and uh, and we're going to discuss them. So we'll uh, we'll start with you, Matt. Which film have you decided we're gonna we're gonna discuss? We're gonna do 1984's Gremlins. Uh, I chose this one uh, because I, as a kid, I saw it more times than. A lot of other films. We talked about Aliens and the amount of times I saw that, but this is up there. This one and Die Hard, it was a very close call between them. But rightly, I think you suggested, Gally, that Die Hard should really have its own big two-hour podcast rather than uh, being truncated. So uh, I went for Gremlins. Um, I think, yeah, I've rewatched it an obscene amount of times. I know it backwards, forwards, you know, upside down. Uh, I think, um, Phoebe Kate standing in the snow in that hat is my go-to Christmas feeling. It's like, uh, that when I see that, I know it's Christmas. So I put it on about the same time of year, probably every year. I looked on my Facebook memories, you know, that thing. And, Mm -hmm. uh, I think roughly around this time of year, every year, like 2013, it was December the 14th. Uh, and I think that was, seven years ago and then 11 years ago i watched it around the 15th of december and this isn't coordinated it just kind of happens so um yeah it's my go-to one it's it's really up there it probably grazes my top 20 i haven't really made an official top 20 but it's up there it's a christmas (laughs) staple um is this uh is this top 20 all time Probably all time. <laughs> Top 20 Christmas uh, films. In, <laughs> no, no. It, 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 it made it into my, um, mega Christmas, um, what did I, I called it, uh, Merry Christmas. It's like a, a horror October, but for Christmas films. So that's on my letterbox. If anyone cares, we can put a link in the, in the show notes. Uh, it made it into there. So it, it's, uh, it's got a lot of Christmas spirit and a lot of childhood memories attached to it. So yeah, I went with, went with that one, went with grandma. So- so Matt, is it is this your favourite Christmas film then? Along with Die Hard, I'd say yeah, because I, I'm cool. I'm of the uh, I'm of the thinking that Die Hard is firmly a Christmas film. I, I don't know if we should talk about what qualifies a Christmas film, but for me, if if it's set at Christmas, um, that that is a 
almost good enough for me if there's Christmas iconography of any kind. I mean, I watched Jaws of Revenge the other day because it has a bunch of, it, it's set over the Christmas period and there's passing out <laughs> parcels and, uh, um, Christmas music at the beginning. So, you know, that's enough. The other thing as well, Matt, with Jaws of Revenge is it taps into that, you know, every Christmas at the Christmas office party there's always some horny devil trying to get with the the widower and oh, George absolutely yeah. nails it yeah the cane yeah. factor <laughs> <laughs> true yeah so what is what do you think qualifies something as a christmas film are you are you of the of the thinking that die hard is is in there because it's set during that season or do you need a bit more oh yeah no i i'm i this this argument I, I tend to find it it gets dredged up every bloody year i know and it is a christmas film not only just because it's set at Christmas, but the uh, the over, overall theme of uh, a man getting back to his family, you know, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, mm. I'm I'm of the opinion that Die Hard is a Christmas movie, uh, as is Gremlins, uh, but they and as is all of the ones that we've picked, I think. But they've all got little um, plays on on the season, don't they? Yeah. But what about you know Patrick Devlin? Thoughts on Die Hard as a Christmas movie? Is is the argument that people one to say is not a christmas movie because then it means they can watch it whenever is that for <laughs> i think because he came out and said it wasn't and uh, right. that triggered it i think and it's not really his business really is it i mean <laughs> <laughs> yeah. says it is, um yeah. willis says it isn't so i don't know because i i just whether that's like a uh a factor because i was gonna when we get into the to the second film from today I was going to say that um, it's not a film that I watch outside of the Christmas season, whereas something like Gremlins, I think, is so good that you can watch it whenever. It's just that it hits a bit harder around Christmas because, you know. Well, that, that was another reason for me picking it, actually, because when we did the Halle Rewind, uh, I was going to put Gremlins with Ghostbusters because they're actually released on the same day, June right. 8th, 1984. And I just felt like for Halloween, Gremlins was too Christmassy. So yeah. I went with ghostbusters and ghostbusters 2 put them together and then went with gremlins as my uh, christmas choice so i've managed to to squeeze it in what we're not going to do listeners is we are not going to go anywhere near the new batch because uh <laughs> i would suggest that that's, that might, its, that, own that, thing. That, that's its own episode right i think, yeah, I think uh, so. not to suggest that gremlins is is inferior but for the uh for the structure of this here uh episode we're going to keep it uh keep it frothy and light and, and, and short and concise when, when it comes down to our Gremlins Christmas uh, choice. So, Matt, go on then. Explain explain what is it about Gremlins then that, that gets you primed for Christmas? Well, I think it's, it's all to do with uh, the childhood memories of all that Amblin stuff. We've talked a little bit about Amblin Around. That was Devlin's title for a, a potential season that we can have a bit later where we each pick an Amblin film because I'm sure they're all pretty formative for our film experiences um so yeah that it was just always there we talked about ubiquity it's it's another one that was always there it's always on tv around the christmas uh season so i just associate it with it really it's um it's got so much um in the bank with me i've seen it so many times i know it you know inside out and and the, the association with spielberg as well i wanted to choose something that that was connected to Spielberg and Dante because they were two uh directors that were that, that meant a lot to me in my kind of early years of learning about films and just enjoying films as a kid really 
um, Joe Dante stuff, Inner Space and mm-hmm. The Burbs. And I talked about Eerie Indiana on the Halle Rewind. Oh, um, such a soft spot for Eerie. Yeah, I, I love that, that show. And without really knowing who these people were, um, you know, even like seeing the names like Frank Marshall, Kathleen Kennedy, like these names pop up and you don't really know what they're doing. But I, I used to think that Steven Spielberg made all of the films because his name was on literally everything. <laughs> he was on, you know, everything from Back to the Future all the way through all the stuff he directed. So yeah, it's just, it's tied in in a way that, um, it's, it's hard to explain. It's just always been there around Christmas time and, uh, and like I said, it's kind of strangely, it pops up around the, the, almost the same week every year when I just have this feeling, like this instinct to watch it. So um, in, in terms of what makes it Christmassy, um, it, it's kind of scattered throughout the plot, but it's, it's, we talked before about it being kind of an anti-Christmas film. Um, mm. So maybe we can get more into, into why it's, it's an anti-Christmas, like the anti, um, it's a wonderful life. There's a lot of visual references in there. Oh yeah, there's so many. I, I, yeah. I mean, that was the thing. Watching it again, so I've got a similar history, and I'm sure we'll probably all echo the same, which is seen it a lot from a young youngster all the way through. Because it's the kind of film that feels slightly dangerous yet fun. It's accessible mm. for children, but when you watch it closely, there is you know Santa gets murdered, an old lady gets <laughs> absolutely killed to death. <laughs> you know, there's, there's all these elements that don't feel very kid friendly. We've, we've a racist who's just walking around <laughs> talking about oh, yeah. constantly. I mean, there's, yeah. no, there's no doubt in my mind that Dick, Dick Miller voted Brexit. Like, there's no doubt he just absolutely wants to take back control. But I, I thought, um, watching it this time, not passive, but just focusing on it, I'd forgotten about all of the, the little flourishes about how it sort of undercuts the season. You know, it mm. presents itself as essentially this kind of Hill Valley, beautiful Americana. And then at literally every turn, Hill Valley. It, yeah, mm. literally. Yeah. And then it, it, at every turn, it undermines it. Like the, the bit that really hit hard for me was the, the, the woman with her children starving outside the bank. There's never any, she never gets like food. We never see anything. We just know that there's people on the street. The thing about that is that, that Dick Miller is in the background of that shot. And no one knows why he's there. On the commentary, Joe Dante says he doesn't even remember, like, asking him to be in that shot. But if you look in the background, he's just there and he's kind of looking over and seeing what's going on. And then he kind of exits frame. So there's a couple of times where uh, the amazing Dick Miller pops up. The the woman kind of uh, uh, talking about how she's going to lose her house and her and her kids are going to be homeless and it's Christmas. And she comes back later talking to um, the bank manager again. Mm-hmm. And it's still not resolved. And yeah, doesn't get resolved. Nobody comes to save them at the end. Mrs. Deagle? What? 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 I just wanted to let you know that Joe got himself another Joe? job. My husband, Joe Harris. And I've taken up some sewing on the side. Mrs. Harris, what are you trying to tell me? I'm afraid that neither one of us will be paid for two weeks. Couldn't you get Mr. Corbin to, well, to just give us a little more time? Mrs. Harris, the bank and I have the same purpose in life, to make money. Not to support a lot of deadbeats. Mrs. Deagle, it's Christmas! Well, now you know what to ask Santa for, don't you? Joe Dante's uh, love of like Looney Tunes cartoons is, is, is pretty uh, pronounced. Yeah. Uh, I'm also a huge fan of them. Um, 
and I guess for this and especially for the sequel, but uh, coming through in this one, it's like the, um, the, when the slapstick kind of madness breaks loose, there's, uh, there are a few films of this era that are quite so kind of manic and gleeful about it. Another tie to Christmas for me though, for this film is Chris Columbus, who, who's, um, the writer. And, course, yeah. you know, there's a big tie in there and I, I'd forgotten and or, I just hadn't even realized because we haven't really spoken about our history with this film, but I, I didn't see this till I was a lot older. I didn't see this when I was a teenager or a kid. I saw this like late twenties, um, oh, wow. late one night with my, my family at Christmas time. Um, and my mum and dad were a bit more aware of it than I was, or maybe I had seen it and forgotten, but, um, yeah. So I saw Chris Columbus's name come up and I was like, Oh, wow. Fantastic. You know, like, and of course that if you, if ever there was the argument of anything being a Christmas film with Chris Columbus is involved in it, I'm sure there's going to be something mm-hmm. Christmassy involved in the film as well. Um, so that was, that was kind of, um, what got me excited about watching it this time round, uh, as well as Joe Dante being, um, for me as well, Matt, similar to you, like a yeah. big part of my upbringing, his films. I like his style mm. a lot. Mm. Yeah. And uh, you, we just carried on with that anti Christmas and an undercutting the normal central theme of uh, you know family and it being a joyful experience and and everyone should be merry that was one the other thing that i really enjoyed about it because you're right patrick chris columbus does i think love christmas How, therefore in the script there are all these <laughs> moments but but the way that dante presents them i mean one of my favorite bits of just like just dark humor is the mother is watching it's a wonderful life and yeah. billy just walks in and she looks really sad it just goes He's like, what, what's wrong? He's like, it's quite a sad film. <laughs> you know, yeah. We, we look at a, it's a wonderful life and you just think about the last five minutes, but, um, I watch it every year and it always, it never, it never leaves me how depressing the film is. It starts yeah, yeah. off with basically someone jumping off a bridge. Yeah. Did you notice <laughs> that then, shot that she's watching on the TV is replicated when Billy is running through Kingston Falls with, uh, yeah. with the dog, with Barney? And it's the exact same composition and he even runs past the same storefronts. And it's right. kind of, it's all been kind of replicated exactly like that. Mm. What's the but other that, film that, that they have on the TV? Cause I, I, I don't know whether I noticed if they replicated that as well, but that, cause there's a few black and white films they watch, isn't there? The other one is a Clark Gable. Well, watch- uh, the Clark Gable one is called, where is it? Uh, to please a lady from 1950, and that's one where Gizmo is watching the racing driver, and he, right. he yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. They've also got the Santa Claus falling off the off the, the roof, roof, yeah, probably, or, yeah. yeah. Well, but again, even that, like Dick Miller is depressed, um, lost his job, but his wife basically represents what everyone thinks they should feel like <laughs> yeah. at Christmas, which is just, she's so great. It's like, oh, stop being a grinch and just smile. It's a time for joy. And he's just like, goddamn God foreign TV. TV. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I, that's what I love about it. And like you say, it, it seems to revel in the fact that it's, um, it's not only presenting itself as this like super duper Christmas movie a la Home Alone, mm. but then these gremlins are tearing it up. Well, like, also like killing people in the street. Aside from the gremlins, there's the the infamous Kate scene where Phoebe Kate's um kind of recounts why why she when when she learned that Santa wasn't real. Spoiler, listen, mm. sorry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there's that's probably the one that dictates the tone in in the biggest way that that. Dante had to fight for 
And if he didn't have Spielberg on his side, I, I think he probably would have lost because I've never seen a, a scene like that in a, mm. in a film like this. It was Christmas Eve. I was nine years old. Me and Mom were, were decorating the tree, waiting for Dad to come home from work. A couple hours went by. Dad wasn't home. Mom called the office. No answer. Christmas Day came and went, and still nothing. Police began a search. Four or five days went by. Neither one of us could eat or sleep. Everything was falling apart. It was snowing outside. The house was freezing, so I went to try to light up the fire. And that's when I noticed the smell. Firemen came and broke through the chimney top. And me and Mom were expecting them to pull out a dead cat or a bird. And instead, they pulled out my father. He was dressed in a Santa Claus suit. He'd been climbing down the chimney on Christmas Eve, his arms loaded with presents. He was going to surprise us. He slipped and broke his neck, died instantly. But the studio unsurprisingly hated it. And uh, it's actually spoofed in the second film. I know we're not going to go too far into a new yeah, batch, but she, she does it again in the second film where she starts Day. to tell a story about a, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich that a mum made. And she met a man who looked like Abraham Lincoln. And she goes back into this this flashback and then it's kind of cut short. So it's the, the Gremlins 2 is really a film that's really ahead of its time and kind of ahead of itself and ahead of the people who thought they knew what Gremlins 2 was going to be. So, yeah, that was kind of cool that it spoofed that that moment and a lot of other things too. Well, those elements are in this one though as well. Again, I'd, I'd forgotten about the bar scene being just so manic. Like that yeah. scene, oh, man. that scene has no real purpose other than just to be gleeful. Why does she keep serving them? Gleeful chaos? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't see them paying anything either. Like, are they just running up a tab? Or... <laughs> yeah, but, well, but I guess they're, 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 they're our only customers at that point. You know, <laughs> yeah. they, The bar's shutting down, isn't it? So she's just yeah, my number one customer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't go into that one. I wanted to pick that film. Put the fucking down. <laughs> the, uh, no, I just, I, I've forgotten because I, I don't know why, but in my head, Gremlins 2 was the, the zany satirical, like meta one, and Gremlins 1 was a bit more straight, straightforward, like mm. straight, straightforward. They just become monsters. They rip the town up and then, and, and that's it. It's turmoil. But that bar scene, they gamble, which just, they've got little tiny trench coats. <laughs> yeah, a little flash of Gremlin, <laughs> and a, a Gremlin with a ski mask. <laughs> There's um, a breakdance in Gremlin as well. That's <laughs> right. Because <laughs> I so for for in our household, Danielle had never actually seen it, and I had had to convince her because she sort of thought she knew what she was about to watch, and I was like, "No, you need to watch it." She was not into the first scene, which we'll talk about the setup and 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 some of the um. Well, it's been now kind of ret- retconned as being a bit problematic but i i just oh really i didn't that didn't no it never crossed my mind either no but we'll we'll get into it but what she did say is 
how are these gremlins all electrical engineers? Like, where are the qualifications? What, what <laughs> job have they been doing? Because they literally just grow up and then they all of a sudden know how to operate everything. But I guess it... it just mischief makers. To, well, it harkens back to the folklore, doesn't it? You know, is it the mm. the um, the RAF in, the, in World War Two gremlins in the system? Yeah. yeah. Gremlins in the, in and the, the engine. WWII. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they're clearly like, I said, like, I don't, I won't say mythical creatures, but they're, they are, I don't think we're supposed to take them that they are some sort of literal animal. Yeah, foreigners like, put them in the machinery. What's wrong with that? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was, that was, I've, I've read a couple of articles that have kind of gone back, and these articles always kind of, irk me a, a touch but in this film i find the uh the asian mysticism supports it because it, it all feeds into the idea that as westerners when we discover things we we're not we're not responsible enough to to have that kind of power um hence billy uh just you know first at the first turn gets water on then feeds them late because he decides to rely on those foreign clocks um and 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 <laughs> then you know mischief just follows but what did you think devlin because you're our um resident lisa simpson buzzkill Party pie in the sky over to you <laughs> <laughs> well I'm, i i uh uh i don't think i I would be very comfortable being the official spokesperson for uh, politically correct <laughs> filmmaking. <laughs> I will say just from my perspective that I totally understand why um as a as a kind of as a broad movement this idea of like reducing entire countries down to a sort of inscrutable mystic other is is it's more in the kind of in the in the grand sweep of it that it becomes a problem. Um and it was just it was just that era the 1980s just became a bit obsessed with um with Chinese mysticism is it's between this and big trouble in little China and that the, the depictions of Chinatown are really similar. Um, mm. in, so like, as a, I can understand why somebody might be a bit irked more or more than a bit irked. Like, you know, they might be proud by the fact that their entire culture is, is being misrepresented and that that is kind of the general image that people get of a country and that media does kind of matter. Media representation does matter from a purely, purely selfish point of view. Um, having grown up in that era, I think there's, um, it can become a bit more difficult to, to recognize that sort of stuff in the films that are your favorites. And also I don't think it's, so it's not that there's anything specifically offensive in gremlins in and of itself maybe yeah, or maybe yeah i can't think of anything to directly point to i mean in yeah, terms of I, I think it's just that it, it's broad stroke general, do you think yeah i was saying to you gally that again from a very selfish and very un lisa simpson perspective that there was something about <laughs> uh the sort of the way that the 1980s used this kind of um uh you know they, they would use another culture or another country as a kind of starting point for a story that um, there is a uh, it's exoticism, but also it's kind of it's, it's when you're a kid, at least it's really fun. It's like, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, that there's something about being given a little window, a completely skewed and fake window into, uh, into something that you don't know. I mean, I think it makes people kind of curious or I would hope that it does. 
And you'd want to explore the, yeah. the culture as well, wouldn't you? I, I get the explorative um, element of that and the exoticism, as you said. I think that's exactly what works about it. Yeah. And all, I mean, all cultures represent themselves, especially through media in ways that skews how they really are. I mean, we are uh, uh, during this, uh, not to, to get ahead of ourselves, but during this little uh, podcast, we are going to be discussing the work of one Richard Curtis. <laughs> oh, and, uh, yes. Have you, I, I, I didn't grow up in that fucking country. <laughs> but love actually is all around, definitely. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's like chain restaurants. You know, if you go to any chain Greek restaurant, I, as a Greek, I don't eat Dalmatis and Souvlaki every day. It's not. Yeah, yeah you do. Every single day. <laughs> would you, would you actually, and yeah. you throw your plates as well. And we throw our plates. <laughs> yeah. You know, my dad, wind, yeah, my dad doesn't use Windex to cure all ailments. So all that kind of <laughs> yeah. I've never heard that one. But he does, he does actually, um, he does relate every word back to a Greek word. That is something that they do nail. Mm. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, my point you, being is, oh, I really love some tomatoes now. Oh yeah, I know they're so good. But the um, the exotic. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, I think from a story point of view, it, it helps because actually what I did find this time watching it is I take Gremlins as just red because it's Gremlins, but watching it with Danielle as a first time watcher, I found it a way, a gateway into the fact that the story is, is kind of obviously it's fantastical. Yeah. But it comes from the inventor's perspective the whole time, isn't it? He's the, na- he's the narrator. Yeah. Yeah. And sure. Then- shall I, shall I do the synopsis? I forgot to do it before. I've got a really short synopsis here for anyone it's who hasn't seen it. has been late for that. <laughs> <laughs> but we're, talk, we're talking about Chinatown and we're talking about, um, we haven't, we haven't really said what we're discussing. <laughs> okay. I've got a short one. When Billy Peltzer's inventive father gives him a unique creature for Christmas bought illegally from a Chinatown, uh, what, what would you describe that guy as? Vendor? I guess he's a, <laughs> a, 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 a apothecary. It's yeah. a, it's a, it's a wonder emporium. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Megorium's wonder emporium. Uh, he, he also relays three important rules about the cute mogwai named Gizmo. A, to keep him away from bright light, especially sunlight. It'll kill him. Two, don't get him wet. And D, never ever feed him after midnight. Of course, Billy promptly breaks them all, spawning vicious little monsters which cause mayhem, death and destruction in the small town of Kingston Falls, USA. I do think it is a a, a good point to bring up, Matt, in that oftentimes with these Christmas films, I don't know if you guys have the same thing, but unless you sit down to intentionally watch them, there's an awful lot of coming into Christmas films about 15, 20 minutes in and then just watching mm. the last bit. So maybe the <laughs> prologue set in, uh, in San Francisco in Chinatown Maybe people miss it. It's usually you just come on TV. It happens, and, you know. Yeah. Like, oh shit, Gremlin. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's. Uh, yeah. It's I, not until the wide establisher, is it, with the title card that you get the snow. Yeah. And you understand. And, and a lot of my VHS copies as a kid were partially taped over through error, or like somebody else taped something, or you know, yeah. I, I thought it was a different tape, and I end up losing five, ten minutes off the beginning. So a lot of it's Seven weird. Like uh, I remember Inner Space. I wrote a little thing about Inner Space. So I was going to pick it. And, uh, I, I missed the beginning of Inner Space off my tape. So whenever I watch it now, that the first 10, 15 minutes are really unfamiliar to mm, me. I know them yeah. now, but then the rest of it, I know like the back of my hand, but then the beginning is very kind of peculiar. It's like, what is this? It's almost like a deleted scene or something. Mm. It's the, it's the predator thing, isn't it? It's the missing the opening shot where an alien craft lands on 
on Earth. No one, yeah. I mean, everyone always forgets that that actually is in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, you just go straight to, you know, Dutch in a, in a helicopter. So right, yeah, right. I, I, I totally get it. I totally get it. But the, the father being that he's the narrator of the story and we know he's got a creative mind, if not a, functioning mind because uh, nothing ever works which is such a such a great little um <laughs> gimmick that goes throughout the whole film i mean not I'm even really the pelts of pet works properly no <laughs> some, <laughs> i just love, some of the adventures are just awesome aren't they i mean I, I don't know about you but um my dad used to have the ashtray that you press the button and it spins <laughs> and takes the ash off and then goes into the bottom. Ashtray. yeah they 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 work about once and then the ash sticks to the top and it stinks and it's horrible and disgusting and you know obviously the ashtrays are yeah. Sort of, uh, being phased out. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I don't know what you thought about that, but the whole kind of 1930s mystical third man start where he goes into the, the emporium, buys the gizm, buys the mogwai. It kind of explains why one, no one's ever heard of this creature. Yeah. Uh, and it's never, you know, it's never been, um, you know, it's never put in the annals. Darwin never mentioned it. Uh, and then, and two, uh, it kind of is a good lead way into the film. You just go, you accept it. Right, okay, here's this creature we've never heard of. Here's three wo- rules. Let's go. Let's fly. Mm. Uh, and it also explains by the end how after all that manic chaos, there are no repercussions. They just, they just, yeah. uh, they, what do they write it off as? A series of, of unfortunate accidents. Hmm. Were the bodies not discovered in the burnt, burnt cinema? <laughs> <Yeah>. um. <laughs> But they, didn't they suggest it was like a uh, like a mounting hysteria that had gripped the town? Basically, the yeah. town had fucking lost it, like yeah. collectively and individually, <laughs> which is kind of a fun. That's idea. interesting. Yeah, that's cool. And and the father Hoyt Axton, um, yes. he he wrote "Joy to the World." He wrote the song "Joy to the World." Bit of trivia, but I'm not too oh. sure why he what? is the um, narrator of the film. It's a bit odd that he narrates. The very beginning and the very end, warning you that there might be a gremlin in your house. But, uh, like, he didn't actually see a lot of the, a lot of the things that went on during the course of the film. So it's peculiar that he yeah. is narrating the, the piece, really. Yeah. That's a good point. Mm. Yeah. He's kind of out of the film. He's at the, mm. uh, but, that, but that's how I, that's how I rationalized it, Matt, as this fantastical story that we don't know if it, he's spinning it. Yeah. It happened. Yeah, yeah. He's spinning it. So that's, that was to me, if you get like those horrible nitpickers that just can't, take a premise at face value. Ah, so he's embellishing say, well, he's, Yeah, story. he's embellishing the story because he embellishes all things, including the bathroom buddy. That's cool. Look, if you are late for a meeting, <laughs> look at this extra additional thing that I've got, which is just a shitty big razor. It's just a big razor. <laughs> the orange one is good. And the, uh, so the coffee. The, the, egg, the egg cracker is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> There's that great bit with Corey Feldman where he comes in and he's got his head under the... Under the thing, and the, or- the orange juicer explodes. <laughs> but it's a, it's another. You know, Matt, you said about the the amplifying of it all. You know, it's a, it's an adjacent Spielberg film. Mm. The absent father again, like his his big thing that he always goes back to in his earlier works. Yeah, you know, it's here in Gremlins too. The the father is not a bad father as such, but he doesn't provide for the family. He's never there. Um, mm. and, but Billy still looks up to him as a, as a kind of hero figure and they all w- wish him well, want him to succeed, but his inventions are shite. Uh, but it's great that they are so <laughs> shit. I yeah. love them. Yeah. It, the whole Billy thing's a bit weird, isn't it? Cause how old is he supposed to be? And yeah, again, yeah. he's, he's yeah. hanging out with Corey Feldman. That's a bit peculiar. And he works, uh, yeah, he works can, in a bank and he lives about... at home. So I'm guessing early, early twenties. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, he's in competition with um, your man from the Santa Claus. I always forget his name. And he's saying he's 23 and look at him and he's comparing himself to Billy. So he must yeah. be approaching that age. Well, it's a bit weird because that uh, Siskel, you know, you know, Siskel and Ebert, I always slag them off. I listened to their review and that one, <laughs> one of the, he, he, he said the little boy, Billy, Gene Siskel. <laughs> he said the little boy with a hairy chest. I mean, what he's not a, he's not a 10 year old boy. I, mean, I don't understand what he's, no, what he's, he's going yeah, on about really. He's, he's supposed to be. An adult, just a, a very young adult. Yeah, maybe yeah. I think 18, 19. Yeah, but his dad wanting a gift for his son at the beginning of the film, you'd expect Corey Feldman to be the son, you know, that age or something, not, <laughs> yeah. not big old yeah. Billy. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it, it doesn't track, does it? I mean, I guess it's the say by the bellisms of the time that you yeah, could have be. a 40 year old playing a 15 year old or whatever, <laughs> but. Billy is literally like working in a bank. I don't know any children that are bank talent. <laughs> I do like his bedroom though. I always wanted a bedroom like that, like in an attic. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, he's got it really well decorated and he's got like his sketch table where he does his drawings mm. and things and a TV kind of up, up on a, um, you know, on like a, a place where your TV can be up out of the way. Mm. I kind of like that. Well, that, that gets me into my, um, Joe Dante comparison piece, which is small soldiers. Um, yeah. very similar, uh, young characters and story, you know, getting something fantastical that wreak havoc on them. Um, and he's got this similar kind of attic bedroom. So it's obviously a stylistic thing that Joe Dante likes. Yeah. But, um, Billy, for me, is not a great character at the beginning of the film. I was starting to get and feel really annoyed by how, blasé he was about gizmo and he wasn't taking it seriously enough for me and everything just kind of happens and it, it i don't know he, he pissed oh, me patrick off. no that's the whole point i mean that's what oh, come on right so when gizmo gets water on his back and he's struggling he doesn't try and help gizmo he doesn't try and pat him down or dry him he just sits on his stairs and i'm like you fucking hell mate you got a dog you're supposed to be looking after this little guy that's one of the that's one of the that's the thing though isn't it you know, he, we are not, we are not ready for that kind of responsibility. The other thing as well that Dante does is obviously when this film comes out, the cynic and everyone goes, Oh, they're just doing it for the toys. Dante actively makes them like feel less, uh, less exotic, less, um, desirable. Corey Feldman comes in, goes mm, neat. And then goes back to his, uh, his shitty, yeah, uh, yeah. 3D blasters. Well, I, I kind of great. agree with you. Like, B- Billy, I don't think it's entirely Billy's fault, is it? I mean, Billy's trying no, no, his no. best, but there is something really disturbing about the abuse of Gizmo. Uh, he's kind of taken against the will of, of the grandfather. Uh, or that, that spilt water scene is kind of a rape of sorts if you want to, you know, push it to its limit. Well, he does it again when he's it's, with his science teacher and yeah, intentionally it really upset me. It. It's worse the second time in a way because it's intentional and he's clearly yeah, in pain yeah. when he's going through it. He's forced to multiply. And then it, there's a bit later where he's kind of blowing his little trumpet and all of the, the other, uh, the other mogwai uh, spit at him. And there's a bit where he's on a dartboard and they're chucking darts at him. Like the the abuse of him over the course of the film is pretty horrible. But I, I'm not sure I'd, I'd blame Billy for it. Really, he, he's trying his best. I guess that that's kind of um, that's Dante really undercutting all the audience's expectations. They set up a, a, a okay, which is so adorable, mm. and then yeah, and then yeah, beat the share of him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, for a, 
from Steven Spielberg, who brought us E.T., Dante is actively, like, walking away from that idea of, oh, I've got this character with these big, bulbous eyes that everyone's going to fall in love with. I'm going to torture him, essentially. That's what Dante's doing. Yeah. He's essentially like, uh, yeah, we're going to we're gonna put him through the ringer. Like, he's, you know, in E.T., they do it, and they go for the heart. In this, they're going for the for the laughs, I yeah, think. It's, it's a bit it's weird. Really it's good. like it, people say it's not really for, for kids, but I think kids are the best audience for this it's like one of those oh, yeah. forbidden ones that you're not really supposed to see when you're too young but you kind of do and when you see it you really enjoy it and it really gets ingrained in you that's i, I saw it probably very young and and nice that didn't do me too much harm i don't think and i'm you know no, the, the, viol- <laughs> the violence is 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 absolutely looney tunes i mean mrs yeah. eagle's death is hilarious it's not it's not it's horrific but it is also <laughs> hysterical i mean it's absolutely fucking brilliant. well there's some other yeah. stuff that they changed too that the, the attack on the mother was originally a, a bit uh, harsher. They originally killed oh, her that. and uh, rolled her head down Ooh. the stairs. Hey, well, you know, I love my technical, and I've been watching a lot of uh, the Mandalorian recently. I don't know whether you guys have been watching that. Um, you know, one of the things to marvel at is the is the practical um, effect mm. of the child in it. And in here, I just love, I love these Mogwai. I love the the first reveal of him of Gizmo coming out of the the case with these little paws come up. And then his head. He, I I do marvel in these practical effects, uh, as I think you do as well, Matt. You're a, a big champion of that. Yeah. And I just I do marvel at things like when there's five of them on screen at the same time jumping around, <laughs> or when his little legs are going, or he's sat on the the side of um uh, on the the sink while he's getting bandaged bandaged up in his ear, and there's full of motion and movement well, that, of the that eyes. That's a really cool uh, cowboy switch they call it. Like he carries in like a little. Yeah, a little yeah. one, and then he puts it down. The camera moves away from the counter, and then when it moves back, it's like a, a wired-in animatronic. Mm. So the, they kind of do a switch off camera, and they do it really seamlessly in this film. It's really cool. Yeah, I, I love all of that, and that's um, that's enough to make me feel Christmassy there, as well. To look one, at something that makes me smile. There's one Patrick where there's a group of like stop motion in a crowd uh near the end after they've all multiplied oh, in yeah. the swimming pool and the only way they're coming can... down the street yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that one looks a bit hokey but it's it's kind of <laughs> stop, stop motion crowd gremlins that but that, that and they're kind of jumping over the top of each other after they've multiplied it's in the swimming pool i think disturbing yeah yeah, yeah it is yeah but they they talked about it on i think it's max landis um talks about it on youtube he had an idea for grem for a gremlins reboot and there's a YouTube video. He's quite an obnoxious guy. And I think he's actually been through a bit of a scandal. I'm not too sure. I can't remember. I think he's been cancelled, Matt. Yeah, think, but yeah, you can mention him. But <laughs> is that okay? He's, uh, he's, he's pitching it to Joe Dante and he's saying that if, if you did it now, you would do it with CG. And he's pitching all of the CG ideas of them swinging down the street on the lampposts and things. And it just made me think, like, you know, I, I really don't want to see a CG remake of Gremlins or Jaws or a lot of these things. From, from my youth. Uh, and I think this is just perfect the way it is. Well, Chris Columbus is writing Gremlins 3. Mm. So we'll have to, uh, we'll have to see what's going on there. But I completely yeah. agree. Like, there's, this film is, yeah, I, I love, um, the use of the, the sets and the town and the geography of this film as well. I think all that works really well. Um, and I, I, I just love the chaos. The chaos is fantastic. When you have like zero technical limitations, you end up with like the gremlins equivalent of World War Z. Right. Where it's just, <laughs> <laughs> they can do anything. They're doing backflips up the lampposts. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, we should maybe, uh, uh, does anyone remember the name of the, uh, the, the, the guy, the inventor of the gremlin puppets? Uh, Chris Wayless from The Fly, we talked about. Yes. Yes. Is it, it's not him? a documentary called Gremlins, a puppet story. Now, apparently this only played oh. on, like, on an online, uh, version of, of one cinema in the States. Um. Wow. Uh, but it was, uh, uh, basically Chris Wayless went back into his archives and he just found all the old, um, uh, tests, all the old puppet tests and he put them together and it was literally him in a, in a shed or a garage or whatever, just, just making puppet after puppet after puppet. That's so cool. Um, I've only seen clips of it, but, uh, I, I don't know if there's plans for a, a full release of this thing, but if there is, I would definitely check it out. The, the, the other thing, um, was the music I wanted to mention quickly. Um, Spielberg says that Jerry Goldsmith's score gave Gremlins its identity. And you'd have to agree with it. I think like there's that, that tune, the Gremlin Rag, uh, it's called, and it has this mad multiple key changes. It just keeps going up and up and up, like really frantically. Um, my, my favorite cue in the film is when, uh, Spike, uh, not Spike, Stripe finds the swimming pool and, uh, dives in, like holds his nose and he goes under, under the water and there's all the green light and smoke. And there's a really strange kind of sickly cue that goes on there. That's really great. Some of it's like Muzak. It's really strange, but I think it's great. There's also like the, the sound that they give. Uh, the Gremlins whenever they're in the water that kind of that's it it's like a, a droning whining <laughs> sound what, one more time Devin <laughs> oh matron <laughs> <laughs> it's the Frankie Howard yeah. Gremlin from Gremlins 3 well um, Matt seem to it's your choice any any favourite scenes before we um, before we move on to our, our second choice well, it is the, the Phoebe Cates scene is great because I just love Phoebe Cates really. Um, you know, not even getting into the Fast Times kind oh. of side of things. Or oh the, yeah, uh, I'm rubbing my knees right now. You know, everyone knows what's going on there. But um, that scene, she, she's saying <laughs> people are opening presents and other people are opening up their wrists. It's really unusual, and it's the it's the scene that dictates that this odd tone and and what makes Gremlins really really special. But um I like the kitchen. I, I always say that like, to my sister, I say, get out of my kitchen. That's one of the quotes that we, we say at home. It it makes me want to eat gingerbread men, that, that scene. We can't get them in Korea, unfortunately, but uh, yeah. But that, that's great. You've got the microwave. It's very gory. The microwave, you've got the kind of the liquidizer uh, thing and you've got... uh what else is the other one? She stabs one to death with a kitchen knife. Well, that, that, that was my, that's then, my favorite scene because it's a classic like horror staple yeah. of women in peril. And then she just turns it on her head and like murders all of them. Hmm. And uh, she only gets bested right. by a Christmas tree. Gremlin. <laughs> yeah, the Christmas tree attack is kind of unintentionally funny in kind of a strange way. But yeah, <laughs> it, it's better than getting your, your head rolled down the stairs, I suppose. Uh, that's my favorite scene as well. That, that kitchen. Same. <laughs> Just how, how she offs three of them in a short amount of time is, is really gleeful, really fun Joe Dante cinema. I, I love that section. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I would just go with, uh, Mrs. Deagle's death by <laughs> extraordinary request. <laughs> Spanner stair lift ejection. <laughs> she flies out the window. <laughs> it's kind of the only, um, it's the only really kind of traditionally sort of like, getting your comeuppance bit in the whole film because she's such a, mm. a, a, a dreadful character throughout and then 
but of course, you know, they keep you with her in inside the house <laughs> slightly too long as well. So it's like, yeah. it's actually a bit uncomfortable. Because <laughs> oh my God, they've come for me. They've come for me. Like she knows it's coming. She's been so horrible. Terrified. And then, yeah, just just the speed at which he gets dumped out of that window. <laughs> it's the landing for me, Devlin. The way, the way that they don't even, I mean, it's literally just a dummy, but the way that they just have it land in the cop. Is that the, the, the cop's reaction is great because that's that's Mike from Breaking Bad and it is, uh, yeah. Yeah, the, the train driver from Under Siege too, as well. Um, so <laughs> that's great. It's like, what the hell's going on? It's supposed to be Christmas. <laughs> and it, right. Well, I think. Um, well, thank you, Matt. Uh, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed Gremlins, um, and we have we have a uh, a pairing. So uh, we move on to you, Devlin. So, what is your choice yes. for a seasonal favorite? Uh, I picked a 1988 Scrooged, directed by Richard Donner and starring uh, Bill Murray. Yeah, um, I, again, probably um, a, a film that I would imagine people are familiar with, probably seen quite a lot, but maybe one that people sort of drop in and out of. Um, but the uh, the old chestnut, A Christmas Carol, gets a cynical late 80s yuppie media satire makeover as Bill Murray's Frank Cross the youngest TV network president in broadcast history stakes his reputation on an enormous pan global live version of what the trailers call Charles Dickens, immortal classic Scrooge. Having thoroughly dismayed his underlings with an acid rain and murder fueled trailer for this ostensibly joyful show. Frank receives a visit from the desiccated mouse filled corpse of his former boss foretelling of the three ghosts who will show up to thoroughly ruin his Christmas Eve in hopes of getting him to mend his wicked ways. One of the ghosts kicks him in the balls a lot. <laughs> That's oh. true. Well, you know, Devlin, you've um, you've presumed too much because I had only seen this film once. Uh, back at university, yeah. My housemate in the first year, Dan. Dan! Um, he, uh, Dan! Dan's a great man. <laughs> He really is. is. Uh, Lex I. Uh, no, Dan, <laughs> Dan used to love this film and I watched it once with him and, and that was it. And it really didn't make an impression whatsoever. And it's definitely not one on my rotation. I don't know about you, Patrick, Matt. It, again, actually very similarly to Gremlins, this is something I discovered in the last, uh, five, six years. And my cousin Ben, if he's listening, he fucking loves this film and he, he was dead excited to watch it with his one Christmas. So put it on and it, I had no reason for not watching it. Nothing like that. I just, I hadn't watched it. My mum and dad like it. They watched it when I was younger. No idea why I hadn't. And I, now it's on hard rotation for, for me, uh, every Christmas. Oh, great. Yeah, me too. I'm the same. I saw it very late, just a few years ago, in fact. And that was weird as the Clearview video shop when I was seven or eight that we used to frequent uh, alongside Beverly Hills Cop, Crocodile Dundee and the toasters and everything like that was uh, <laughs> scrooged in this small shop. And it was uh, Kavner's was the other video shop and it was in there every time too, never on loan. Uh, strangely, but I, I never rented it and uh, I hadn't seen it until maybe two or three years ago. Yeah, I'm surprised at myself as well, Matt, because I'm such a Ghostbusters fan and Bill Murray fan from that when I was a kid. Yeah. And I, I have no idea why I didn't see this. Isn't it weird? He's one of my favorite actors and I hadn't seen it. So it's odd. That's really interesting. I, I was, uh, I was actually going to say that, um, uh, I used to watch this quite a lot when I was a kid, but I used to wait for it to roll around on TV and sometimes it wouldn't be on and I would be very disappointed. 
uh, I would have seen it in the early 90s, I think. So I was on a big Ghostbusters kick as well. Mm, yeah. One of the first films I saw at the cinema, I would have been about five, I think, probably just turned five. Mm. Um, and it would have, I guess, Scrooge coming out the year before, which means it was probably hitting TV either the, either that year or, or the, the Christmas after. And But I never bought that video box, even though I have such clear images of the it's a very distinctive cover of crazy haired bill with the skeletal hand i like i like his his flashback hair which is like his kingpin hair <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> but it's weird i i don't think i own many christmas this is why i was saying that uh like you know the the debate is like is, is die hard a christmas movie and if it is does that mean that you shouldn't watch it other times and i uh obviously that's not the case die hard is brilliant and the same with gremlins and honestly I don't know whether this film would exist as, as would sit as well outside of watching it at Christmas. So I, I rarely own Christmas films on, on any kind of like media format, I guess, just because you always just expect to only ever need them. I literally just bought home alone on DVD for the first time this week because, uh, Blu-ray Evil double Disney pack at my house. Uh, I only got the DVD double pack because I'm a cheapskate. <laughs> <laughs> because the Evil Disney Plus has hoovered it up. And I, I know, yeah, you don't want to see that Tic Tac in 4K, you cheapo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if you, the Blu-ray is actually uh, probably a negative because when it's so clear that you can see oh, it's very Kevin, Kevin, no, Kevin's stunt man is actually a stunt woman, I think. Oh, oh does the, the well, tree, the tree house slide. <laughs> Yeah, but Matt, or even on the DVD or on TVD, you can see that they're about a foot taller than him anyway. So. <laughs> but you can see the the face on Blu-ray. It's really, it really kind of spoils it. <laughs> not like Hard Target on the motorbike. No, definitely not. With old Razor. <laughs> razor mm. Devlin, you know, we talked to, we, we talked before in Hard Target about the most dangerous game being uh, its own text. And, and this is absolutely one of those and you've inferred it in your synopsis that oh the christmas carol thing it's been done to absolute death everybody's got one. every tv show yeah. has has a roll out the episode. old actor in whatever country you are and have them read the story of scrooge <laughs> ebenezer doing his thing and then getting his redemption um but i um yeah so i'd said i hadn't really seen it that much can i can i eat my chicken well actually it's not chicken is it? it's turkey and stuff with cranberry sauce what? sandwiches and say that hell? I absolutely loved this film. I thought it was fucking brilliant. The opening 30 minutes are... I said you weren't... No, my first viewing, I was like, you... is it too cynical? I was I, I too cynical and his bill being like too disingenuous because I did find his performance totally all over the place. Like at some point... He's... I felt that way, uh, Gally, after I think it's the Ghost of Christmas present it turns up and he's still cynical he's not even softening and there's something mm. in that section i was like whoa okay uh it might is that come close to where the we're stapling on antlers on a mouse or no i'm trying to remember I'm like, that's it's after that isn't it's like it? an hour in and i'm still don't believe that he's actually learned anything uh he's i felt that but of course you're supposed to because that's very in keeping with the original text yeah, anyway Asshole up until the exact exact moment. moment. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Maybe it's because it's Bill then, and I just don't quite believe when he. It's, it's not Mark or Kane no. with some muppets. No, but also as well, I think he perfects it in Groundhog Day. Like the 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 whole tone of the film in Groundhog Day allows Bill to to be. 
the Bill Murray that we loved, the cynical, quipping kind of uh, I'm slightly better than you are performance. Uh, whereas in this, like I said, it, th- that speech at the end goes on for about 20 minutes. And I'm, I was just sort of, I was sort of thinking to myself, this feels like he's just gone off piece. Like this can't be in the spread. Uh, that's exactly what he did. <laughs> it works though, right? I thought it worked for me. I just thought it worked. Like, uh, I, I don't know how else you'd end that film. I think you have to do something odd. I think it's got such a kind of strange tone to it all the way throughout that the, the fact that it ends on what is a kind of Peter Finch in network-esque breakdown yeah, yeah. is, uh, you yeah. know, that he's, I, I think Bill Murray was struggling throughout the film. Like the actual, the, the actor Bill Murray was struggling throughout the film because he, uh, uh, clashed with Richard Donner a lot. He wasn't quite sure that Donner got the tone that he wanted, the, the script. Right. Apparently was- Donner kept asking him to do it louder and, and yeah. Bill Murray thought he was deaf because he kept saying, <laughs> do it louder, do it louder. They wanted like a, a big, um, extrovert performance, I think, for him. Yeah. And he was doing something a little bit different, wasn't he? And when you say, Gally, that, uh, um, you you think that he maybe hit peak Bill in in Groundhog Day? It's because Groundhog Day allows him to be both like a, a a smug asshole, but a smug asshole with like a deep well of uh, of sadness underneath it. It makes him it's that hangdog quality, the kind of the um mm-hmm. the, the 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 strange kind of aloof uh, misery of Bill Murray that made him such a kind of you know that's what he's been playing on for the last twenty plus years since Rushmore. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas this is a different Bill Murray. This is like, it, it doesn't seem really that Bill Murray-ish. Mm-hmm. He really is like, he's, he's, uh, he's dialed up so much more than he is in basically anything else. I, I think that's where the flashbacks, the uh, Christmas past, uh, that's, that helps though, doesn't it? When he's younger, when he meets, uh, Karen Allen and, um, what's her name? I think that all helps with that Devlin, but uh, yeah, I completely see what you're yeah. saying. I also think as well, I, it might just be because his earlier work is so distinctive, but I always find that Bill Murray works when he's not the establishment, when he's undermining the establishment. I'm thinking of like Stripes and, um, and Groundhog Day, you know, he's, he's just a weatherman who's trying to get to the top, but he's not at the top. Whereas in this, he is literally the lord and master of this world. So it, it's somehow, yeah. Listen, I was laughing all the way through and I really enjoyed it, but I can understand why on the first watch I had a, I had a Roger Ebert response because I read his review, Matt, and he, he read, he did not enjoy oh, this film, go. did he? He was, oh wow, got, um, he went after Gene it. Gene Siskel's funniest moment was the stapling antlers to a mouse. Ebert said that the film had anger and hostility and no gentleness or warmth. And an undercurrent of anger and high tension. And then they got into this thing, like he, he argued that Bill Murray exhibited no joy of performance because that's in his criteria for great performances. There has to be joy. And Siskel rightly said, I bet Robert De Niro didn't enjoy making Raging Bull <laughs> either, but you know, it's a great yeah. performance. They're both lazy hack critics <laughs> and <laughs> thumbs down <laughs> both of them. It's a little to what, uh, to what Eva was saying there that, I mean, like there is a, such a kind of, uh, a through line of really genuine kind of cynicism in the film as a media satire, which always kind of rings a bit weird when a major media corporation puts out a media satire. Seven o'clock, Psycho sees Santa's workshop. Eat this. And only Lee Majors can stop them. The night the reindeer oh. die. 
Bernie and America's best love singer invites you to share a homestyle holiday. When it's Bob Goulet's old-fashioned Cajun Christmas. Nine o'clock, IBC presents America's favorite family in a special Christmas episode. Hi, Mom. Where's Dad? Should have been home by now. Well, Wally, I know your father is out chasing beaver. Father loves beaver. Here on IBC, you'll love it. I, I like it when he says as well, uh, doesn't he read a news article about some woman like had a heart attack and died after watching the advert. So he's like, yeah. I want this advert on every half hour or something. <laughs> yeah, it's, the, it's the exorcist, isn't it? It's essentially like, oh, someone threw up in the cinema. Use it. My God, this film is so so powerful, so strong. I must go and watch it then. I mean, that's yeah. that good. Um, but no, I, um, I really, I really did enjoy it and I was kicking myself because for the last 30 odd years, I've not been watching this at Christmas and now it's very much, uh, yeah. going to be on my rotation. Well, yeah. as Christmas films go, you know, uh, on this naughty list that we're discussing today, uh, Matt versus Devlin, Devlin's definitely has the more Christmassy feel and ending to it with that, um, rant from Frank at, at the end because when mm. he's topped off with God bless us everyone from, uh, your man, uh, I forgot his name. Calvin, is it? Uh, yes. it's, God, you, you know, I, I, th- I love it. I love that whole, how that tops off that whole section of Christmas Eve. Well, that sing along ending is great. And the sing along yeah, and the, yeah, it's really wonderful. Um, also yeah. it kind of, he breaks the fourth wall, like during the credits as well with the, yeah, the, yeah. The, this side of the theater and then the, the real men <laughs> give us a round of applause. <laughs> real <laughs> women. It's all very cool. Yeah. He's, uh, he's doing a lot of heavy lifting in that last 20 minutes when he's doing his big single. Well, I say 20 minutes. I'm being hyperbolic, but it felt, it felt overly stretched out because it was just like, Bill, do something. Keep keep this train rolling. Well, Bill's improv was a problem. Apparently, that they said on the Ghostbusters documentary, the uh, the cleaning up the town documentary. I don't know if you've seen that. It's one of the fairly new ones. And uh, the the actress that played Janine had a real problem with Bill because he didn't know his lines. He showed up late, and he just said whatever he wanted to say, like SNL style. And she was waiting for the cue to say the lines that she'd learned. And she was looking like an idiot because she didn't know what to say back to this guy who was just spouting random stuff and she said to him like can you just say the fucking lines so we can go home and all of the crew uh, erupted into applause because they were tired of bill too so it looks great on screen but i bet it's a nightmare when you're trying to get stuff done yeah so this was his first um film well his, his first film after razor's edge which is a film that he uh he kind of leveraged his ghostbusters fame into being able to make and direct it's a real passion I've watched it. When I say watched it, I literally could not finish it. It is extremely boring. Uh, sorry, Bill. Um, so I, uh, when he came back to this one, he wasn't sure. He re-vacillated on it for a long time. I think he only took it because the script was written by Michael O'Donoghue and um, and Mitch Glazer, who were two guys. And he got $6 million as well. That might be. That'll help. Yeah. <laughs> that might, that um, might help. Yeah. yeah. Um, I read about that in Art Linton's book. Um Oh God, what's the, what's the Art Linton book? Uh, what just happened? Is that the one? You're on your own there, mate. Um, anyway, I think, uh, uh, the, the, the producer, kind of high profile 80s, 90s producer, Art Linton, who made this film, he made a bunch of like, kind of not quite hits 
and uh, this was definitely in that category it's uh, quite telling that that so many of us uh, didn't really start watching it until recently i think probably it's its reputation has been rehabilitated in the last few years i don't think it was particularly well liked for a long time um, maybe it's just that it sort of suits the times a bit more now. Well, when, when I was making my list of Christmas films, there's not many that are like this. Like some of them kind of skewer Christmas in a really extreme way, like the bad Santas, which I kind of like. Yeah. I, I found a lot of laughs in the, the first, I think I remember saying on the message, like the first 10, 15 minutes of bad Santa two has more laughs than a lot of the Christmas films I've been watching combined, like Christmas with the Cranks and Deck the Halls and things like that. There's really nothing in it to really get Christmas you. Christmas with James Gandolfini? Uh, right, right. Uh, yeah, Ben Affleck. And, uh, he's in he plays like a douchebag rich kid. Yeah, it's like there's not many films that have this. It still has a Christmas, the Christmas spirit, but it has a darker tone that feels like an antidote to some of the nicer films we we're going to Have you seen Krampus? Matt? I love Krampus. I haven't, no. I fucking love that film. It is, it's talk. That's it, more of a horror. It marries what you're saying here because it's this dark undertone of, um, reaping what you sow. Uh, yeah. And it's fucking awesome. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Great. You were saying, uh, uh, that you don't really want a CGI laden kind of Christmas comedy, horror, whatever. The design work in Krampus is so good. Well, I thought it was mm. Joe Dante when I was watching it, Chris. It felt yeah. like that, just to hark that, but yeah. Well, there's definitely some comparisons here, though, with Gremlins and Scrooge when you look at those effects and also that blend of, of horror and Christmas joy. Oh, yeah. Because, yeah. like, the ghosts of, uh, Christmas past, present, uh, the, the golf dead guy, his old boss is fucking yeah. disgusted <laughs> and brilliant at the I love the joke with the mouse in the back of his head, uh, and when he's doing to say something like, uh, "Just be, you can shoot me all you want, just be careful with the Bacardi." <laughs> when he's ripping his arm off when he's hanging out the window, that is, oh, oh it's horrible. Yeah, yeah, it's great. That's, that's really cool as far as Richard Donner's stuff goes, because he's not afraid to be like really wacky and silly. Like a lot of the Richard Donner stuff, he he has an odd tone like that. Like they get dark, but they usually really really funny like goonies superman lethal weapon they've all they've all got like kind of strange fluctuating tones but yeah i was impressed by that lou haywood ghost corpse stuff as well that was one of my favorite makeups well, and donna's Don, donna is normally known for his his wholesome broad appeal you know everyone if you say richard donna everyone goes straight to superman but you're right there's an odd goofiness about his humor which works i think with uh with bill murray but obviously there are times when clearly there's some conflict between both of them. I mean, I'm thinking about one particular scene where Bill Murray is shouting for five minutes after he's just been the been with the ghost of Christmas present, and he just he's just walking around yeah. shouting. And I'm like, what is he doing? <laughs> yeah. <around. laughs> so maybe you kept saying louder, so he did it louder. Yeah, I'm on to you. He's <laughs> 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 walking to the to the, the the homeless shelter that Karen Allen works in. And she'll, and she'll respect me. (laughs) (laughs) Not like you. You know, um, know, Ebert was saying there wasn't any heart or any, any gentle or softness. I thought that, I mean, the way that Mm. Donna shoots Karen Allen's smile just kind of softens me anyway. She's, she, it's, it's a postcard relationship and we'll get into postcard relationships in part two, 
maybe with Love Actually. Well, she's a bit of a childhood favourite, isn't she? With through like Starman and Raiders. Yeah, and, and I think I think she yeah. softens him every time they have a scene. I think they've got good chemistry, and and you can see the you can see the germ of Groundhog Day in in his performance, the way that mm-hmm. he, he he works with her and their relationship. I think he also has a really good chemistry though with the ghosts, and particularly Carol Kane, who yeah. is really wonderful and bizarre and a proper firecracker in this film and i i like all the moments they have together and her just abusing him physically <laughs> and uh in this softly sweet voice but she's just she's great no thank i'm the ghost of christmas present i had a funny feeling oh, why <laughs> did you do that sometimes you have to slap them in the face just to get their attention fine slap me in the face but you kicked me in the wall. It's time to begin the journey. Now, close your eyes and think. No, you close your eyes. Oh, no. I'm through. Don't be awesome. Close your eyes and think of snowflakes and moonbeams and whiskers on kids. No picking. <laughs> We've we discussed this uh, previously on a previous episode, but I got a lot of, of adventures of Baron Munchausen in this. The, the the idea of it just being like scenes, not really connected terribly, but they're just setups for for gags and and fun and just gleeful madness going on on screen. You know, I, I, I get that there's a structure to it. You know, with the past, present, future, but outside of that, it felt very Munchausen. Like here's our next adventure, just going over here now. And on I, 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 I think this is a tighter. I don't think it's as random as that though. This film, it, it's certainly, it's definitely leading somewhere. The script is more coherent for definite, yeah. It, it, it honors the original text throughout, you know, as a base setting as well. So it's not, I don't think it's that random, but, um, I know what you mean. When you mention Munchausen, cause I, I tend to bring him up too much, but I think for once it's actually valid, which is, I don't think these kind of Terry Gilliamisms are accidental i think uh this is like three years after brazil and brazil was like a a kind of a a really technically a christmas film yeah exactly and it's it's kind of influential and i think probably uh, uh certainly it seems like the production was familiar with this stuff because the way that they are using the practical effects here and the kind of the the strange odd meshing together of like horrific imagery and slapstick comedy like the way that he peers into the ribs of the ghost of christmas future <laughs> and is all the Soul in it. Oh, there's another good one with the the fire, with the the baked Alaska fire, and then yeah. when he's leaving, he that that slip that he does when he falls down as he's leaving, which was apparently real, but uh, that was my favourite Bill Murray bit of slapstick in the in the whole thing. It's, it's great, and there's uh there's some stuff in the future sequence, the projection of it. There's the the bit with Karen Allen, like an aged up Karen Allen, scrape him off. Yeah, bit. yeah, Little. that is like it. Like, um, yeah. Uh, his mother, Sam, uh, Sam Larry's mother in the restaurant where there's constantly, um, bombs going off. Uh, and the, the design of the, the mental facility that Calvin ends up in being at such strange and harsh angles and this really tall kind of wide angle lens set. I don't know. To me, it kind of came across as very mid-age. No, no, you're right. You're right. And that, that's what I was, I guess that's where I was like the Munchausen just because it's at the forefront of my mind because it's his last guilt. Yeah. I haven't made that association, but I could completely see it now. That, um, because, Matt, you said it, like, Donna doesn't, this is quite interesting for Donna. Like, he hasn't really done, 
his films can he has the he has the comedy elements in things and weird sense of humor but this is unlike anything he's done at this point he's all over the place with his choices yeah it feels like a reset yeah. like actually i'm gonna reinvent myself and i'm gonna go with this with this actor from ghostbusters this star and and do something very 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 different from his other works but as you say he's hand railing uh, a classic a classic text and and that was the other thing that i found um the film did really well because we're all so familiar with it uh, sometimes you know when you get these new versions i can't abide by it because i'm just like i know exactly where this is going and it's so you have to be entertained in the moment because you know exactly where the story going you know exactly who's next what's happening and obviously you don't know how it's going to happen but you know what is going to happen i thought the film did a really good job of um keeping us entertained the characters there's great characters in this film though isn't there and one of 80s staples who i i love from um i always forget he's bloody the high-pitched dude uh elliot goldfait he i i when i was watching it the other day for this i was kind of i miss that guy I miss that guy just doing what he did best in the 80s cinema. You know, like he was kind of the same squeaky character in a lot of these things, but he, he's great in this as well. He's always said to me. Yeah, it's always always said. Yeah. <laughs> actually, you know, I don't know. Is is the actor, is he still alive? Because I'd imagine he just does like... Yeah, he is, yeah. Yeah, he's a oh, director. Oh, wow. He's a director of some he renown. Was, he makes a lot he of was very, very good friends with uh, Robin Williams as well. Wow. Yeah, he directed him in a couple of films. World, uh, World's Greatest Dad was one. Oh, okay. Gosh. Some of his films are definitely worth checking out. They're kind of, uh, they're, they're pretty cynical and, and, and I guess they, they carry on a bit of this, but kind of take into some slightly more extreme mm. places. Okay, cool. Cool. Well, um, should we do the round table? Favorite scenes on, on Scrooged? So Devon, you want to go first? What's, what's the highlight in this one? I, th- I mean, we're probably, we've all already said it, but the, the opening of the film, the IBC kind of, uh, TV satire stuff is, is really good. Um, <laughs> so good. It's, it's really funny. Apart from that, mm. uh, the, the, yeah, the, the baked Alaska sequence, um, the, the buildup of tension where you've got the real extreme close up on John Glover's mouth and then Bill just looks at him and gives up that big, ah, and no yeah. one else. <laughs> <laughs> or him trying to react to an eyeball in a glass. Yeah. <laughs> that that's my favourite scene, Devlin, Matt. Uh, you both said it, but I that scene is brilliant. I think that's Bill Murray is best in the film, um for for the most rounded parts. And it, when it ends with that fall, I just I love the fall because it does look real and it's it, 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 his straight face of despair. Uh, yeah, you've great. got to give credit as well, Patrick, to yeah. the uh, the British waiter. It is he. Baked Alaska. I, do, I absolutely adore him. He's so he's so like, he absolutely has got such contempt for these people that he's serving. Sorry, I are you him? Are you him? Are you he? I'll take it away. Now don't, uh, don't come apart on me, Frank. No. No, what was that that uh, your lacrosse coach said? No, the uh, the point is, Excuse Frank. Excuse me, gentlemen, are you ready to order? Great, yeah, I'll have the uh, California health plate. No dairy in that, huh? Mm-hmm. How's the rack of lamb today, Bobby? Excellent choice, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. 
Oh my God! Ah! But, but, Bobby, look! Somebody save him! Oh no, that's a baked Alaska, sir. That's, no, that's a dessert. You wouldn't want that, sir. Oh, no, 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 sir. That gentleman had a meatloaf. You, you wouldn't want that, sir. It's not very... It's, it's full of... Sir. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have... Have. I'm going to have... Uh, have. I, I'm going gonna, gonna to go have some air. I like the solid gold dancers bit with... Um, it was quite an edgy dancing sequence for a family Christmas movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, that line about the nipples that you said earlier was very good. And <laughs> I, I like the, uh, the, the Tom, the Tom Waits looking cabbie who's actually the free oh, jack the free guy, jack. right? Yeah. From, yeah. Uh, that's him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The ghost of Christmas past number, number one, I think. And the first ghost. And that, that was supposed to be Sam Kinison, apparently. You know, oh, the stand up okay. Sam Kinison. Yeah. He, he died like four years after the movie. I don't know why he didn't get it, but um, he, you can really imagine him in that role. He's a, a screaming stand-up. That, that's part of his bit that he kind of, uh, it, it may, maybe him and Bill together would have been a bit much. Um, but it, although Bill's not really screaming in that scene, but yeah, that that's kind of a cool, a cool visual scene. I like the way the, the, uh, the counter on the fair in the, in the cab uh, goes back in time to kind mm. of tell us what, yeah, that's that's cool. kind of a cool, cool visual scene. But, uh, yeah, I like, I like the baked Alaska and that, that slip is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And the very, the very end, the, the ranting monologue is, is terrific. I, I don't remember her name, Devlin, but I also, like, always cracks me up when he grabs that woman's head off the floor, spins her <laughs> neck around and says, do you see a nipple? Can I move her head? No. <laughs> <laughs> that slap, slapstick nature against her when she just gets destroyed is brilliant. And then the random kiss under the mistletoe with, um, with John Glover, it's just all, all of that I find very funny. No, even, well. even, even rise at the end of the film when he's about to declare his love for Karen Allen, he managed to get a snog off a really uh, hot dancer and then just says, That was nice, but it wasn't. It wasn't, it wasn't <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tell me, you said he improvised a lot of it. Did he improvise? He kind of just improvised that kiss, could he? Uh, I think they, they probably would. And I don't know, actually, I, the, the vast majority of that sequence was, it was scripted, but he kept kind of going. So when you've got like the, the people in the gantry kind of saying like, Oh, just follow him, go with him. Apparently the actual camera crew also had to do a bit of that. Like they really weren't sure where he was going with it. So it is. You got a party hardy, Marty. In the script, it might have just said, you know, uh, everyone breaks out into song and dance and that's it. And Bill's obviously stretched it to yeah. five, six minutes of. Yeah, pure joy. I just love the way he's like, that was very nice, uh, but it wasn't a deck. <laughs> but it wasn't was great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, magic. Well, there you go then. So that's our, that's our sort of anti-Christmas picks. Um, the naughty list. Naughty list. Yeah, the naughty list. So a coal. That's a coal for our mm, listeners. Indeed. Well, lots- that's all we're getting. Me yeah. and Dev. Well, year. actually, um, yeah, I was going to get you a towel. Um, but there we are. Hey! <laughs> Very good. Oh, yeah. And if you haven't Very seen good. the film, that joke will fall on deaf ears like many of my jokes. There you go. <laughs> right. Well, we'll, we'll say our goodbyes for part one. Um, so listeners, double bill. I mean, amazing. What a, check your stockings because you've actually got two for one. So in part two, when we get back, we're going to do the nice list, which is my choice and Patrick's choice. 
uh, and those will be revealed. I think I've already slightly revealed them, Anna, um, but it doesn't matter. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll say our goodbyes. Um, but yeah, anything else to add, chaps, on on Gremlins and Screws before we? Well, Gremlins I watched on Now TV, uh, and I think Scrooge oh, I yeah. watched on Now TV as well. That's where they're available for me. I don't have them on DVD or anything. Yeah, Scrooge is on uh, Prime in the UK and Now TV and Sky Go uh, and Gremlins. So it's on uh, it's on Now TV. That's where I watch it, and uh, the new batch is uh, on there. Sky Go as well. Yeah, yep. there cool. you go. Uh, but Scrooge, yeah, get it on Prime if you've never seen it. And don't be like me. Don't wait like 30 years. Get into that now. IBC's programming is fantastic. So there we go. Yeah, great choices, lads, because um, they're both films I didn't discover till my late 20s, and now they are proper Christmas staples for me, so thank you. Oh, that's uh, cool. I'm glad you're into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Magic. Well, we'll uh, we'll say our goodbyes. I've slightly stolen my line, which was I was going to get you all a towel. All I can say is, Father loves Beaver. It's Gary in Glasgow. Signing out. Bye, bye, woof, woof. It's Devon in London. Bright light, bright light. It's Patrick in L- London. Yeah, buddy, I'm crazy, crazy like a fox. <laughs> Matt in South Korea. All right. Uh, Merry Christmas, everyone, and we'll catch you next time in part two of our naughty and nice list on the Rewind Movie Podcast.